I hope that you were here with us, or if you weren't, that you had the chance to watch uh, or to uh, listen to the message as uh, it was the first of a two-part message. Uh, We covered a pretty good chunk of territory last week, Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 45, uh, and what was the first of a two-part message uh, titled, Why I Came. And uh, we, you, if you were here last week, you know we uh, plowed for quite a while. You gave me a little extra time. I told you I owed you 20 minutes. I gave you an hour back this morning, so let's call it even. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> I, I want to build off of last week's message uh, th- this morning, picking up where we left off, taking a bit of time to reset the table, and then taking a bit of a theological excursus uh, on a, vast, a, a matter of vast significance to the Christian faith. This subject holds radical implications for our lives as followers of Jesus, both now and for eternity. And because of its importance, and because none of us ever knows exactly when we're going to need this, I provided uh, an outline uh, around you if you would like to have something in front of you uh, to be able to take notes uh, and to take away with you. First, I'd like to set the table uh, by recapping just a bit. Uh, As we looked at these verses last week, verses uh, 21 through 28, We saw Jesus launching his public ministry uh, in the city of Capernaum where Simon Peter's house was. With his four uh, newly uh, called disciples in tow, uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue because it's the Sabbath. And there he teaches with incredible exousia, with innate authority, and the people are incredibly impressed at his ability uh, to teach unlike anyone they had ever heard. His, His authority isn't derived from somewhere else, it's as though it was coming from within him. And as he's teaching, a man happens to be in the synagogue who is possessed with a demon. Uh, And he, uh, seizing the man's vocal cords, speaks to Jesus uh, and attempt to out him uh, and prevent what uh, he knows Jesus has come to do, uh, which is, according to 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. Again, with exousia, with innate power, Jesus commands the demon to be silent. He calls the demon out of the possessed man, thus healing him. And then everyone is, uh, again, filled with a sense of awe that this is not only a man who can speak with power, but he can actually do things. He can cause things to happen. Uh, And this sets up a contrast for Mark of demons who know who Jesus is, but who cannot be saved, uh, in contrast to people who do not know who Jesus is, uh, and they won't be saved. People are attracted to Jesus, we saw last week, uh, for temporary fixes to their ailments. Everybody wants to be healed, uh, but that's all they want. Uh, They come to Jesus for that and then walk away. And this becomes a recurring problem for people. They will want Jesus for what he can do for them, not just in Jesus' day, but I think even in our day. Uh, The temptation for us is to turn to the Lord uh, for what we need from him since he is God, uh, and then we are content to live our lives on our own terms Monday through Saturday. So people are coming to Jesus uh, for him to heal them, for him to feed them, but Jesus came for something far more significant than that. Uh, Then we continued, verses 35 through 39, and uh, in fact, uh, as uh, as, uh, they left the synagogue, I'm sorry, it was verses 29 through 31, as they left the synagogue, they immediately went to Simon Peter's house, which is close to the synagogue, and uh, as soon as they arrived there, they discovered that Peter's mother-in-law is ill. And so Jesus, having spoken with authority, now uh, demonstrates touch with authority, and he raises Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, uh, and he restores her to purpose. Uh, she immediately gets up and begins to serve he and the disciples. 
Uh, and then that evening, uh, as soon as the Sabbath is over, continuing in verses 32 through 34, about 6 p.m., uh, no one could move around before that. It was a violation of the law. But as soon as 6 p.m. Uh, turned out, the whole town gathers around Simon Peter's house, bringing people who are sick and people who are demon-possessed. And Jesus spends all evening uh, casting out demons and healing people and commanding the demons not to identify who he is because they knew who he was. Uh, then in verses 35 uh, through 39, uh, Jesus, in the middle of the night, uh, the following evening, uh, gets up and goes to uh, spend time in a desolate place with the Father because he's facing temptation, the temptation to go with the fanfare because everyone in the city turned out to see him. Everyone uh, wanted to see him heal, uh, or he's renewing his commitment to do the Father's will. So he gets away to a desolate place for that purpose, to, to, to receive an affirmation from the Father and to renew his desire to do the Father's will. Now, meanwhile, everyone in the town wants Jesus to show up, so the disciples have been looking for him, and when they find him, Peter's words to Jesus are, are rather frustrated, where he says, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus' reply to the disciples is, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. So while healing is a part of the ministry that the Spirit of God has anointed Jesus to do, signifying thus that he is the Messiah... Mark shows us how easily uh, we are tempted to just want Jesus for what we want him for, a very me-centric interest in the Messiah, and that's thus a distraction from his primary ministry. He didn't come simply to fix ailments. Finally, in verses 40 through 45, we consider Jesus' encounter the very next morning in another town with a leper who, out of desperation, violates the law and comes close to Jesus. And, and Mark sets up a contrast between the leper and everyone else who was healed the day before in that he recognizes who Jesus is and he recognizes that though he has the power to heal, uh, he doesn't presume upon Jesus to do so. He says to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And then in language I told you that connotes agitation, uh, Jesus uh, cleanses him, sternly charges him not to speak of it. And then sends him away and tell, tells him to go and to present uh, the offering uh, that Leviticus specifies for a leper. From, Luke, uh, from Leviticus 14, we uh, found out that that's a, an offering of two birds. One bird that is to be killed. Uh, the living bird then is dipped in the blood of the dead bird. Uh, that bird is released into the open field. Uh, and it uh, carries the same uh, imagery of uh, the Passover lamb that there's a, a Passover lamb that's offered every year for the sins of the people. And the high priest will pray the sins of the people onto that lamb, and then that lamb will be slaughtered and placed upon the altar. Uh, that's propitiation. Uh, and then there's also a, a second lamb called the scapegoat. The same thing would happen. The, the priest will pray the, prayer, the sins of the people onto the scapegoat, and then like the bird released into the field, the scapegoat is released, and he takes the sins outside of the camp, as it were. All of those things are foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish for us on the cross. Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. This is why uh, uh, merely having a healing ministry, merely being a miracle worker, is not something Jesus is interested in. He's come to die for humanity, to be the Lamb of God. And propitiation means uh, to bear the weight of God's wrath to the fullest extent until it becomes favor. That's how much... Jesus absorbed for you and I on the cross as the Lamb of God. He, he bore the full weight of God's wrath against your sin and against my sin to the point which God's wrath turned into favor toward us. But he's also our expiation. He's the one upon whom God laid the sins of the entire world and he removes them from us. 
that act uh, upon the cross, Jesus being the Lamb of God and also the scapegoat for humanity, is the central event of all human history. And so for you and I, when we come to this topic today, we dare not think that we can just, we just get saved and then because of the glory of the cross, we just get to move on and do whatever we want. No, we, we're uh, called by Jesus to take up a, a symbol of a capital punishment, a cross, deny ourselves and follow him. We have to be reminded continually of, of how deeply we need the gospel. So from here, we ask and answer an important question. Is Jesus still healing today? And we answered that question with a resounding, absolutely. Listen, friends, there is nothing uh, that God can't do. He's God. If he has a purpose for it, if he needs to do it, then he can. Uh, but just because he can doesn't mean he's going to. Because the, the, the most important thing that God has done has provided a solution to our sin on the cross. He's interested in a church that knows that and then goes out to make that known to people who do not know him. That's what we're called to do. That's what making disciples means. So God can do anything he wants, but he's been clear about what matters most to him in the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He wants to restore uh, lost men and women. He wants to uh, save souls. He wants to see us come to know him and to walk with him. Uh, this is Jesus' uh, primary concern. Not merely the healing of, of physical ailments, uh, of, of broken lives, but of saving souls uh, and forgiving sins. And this is why Apostle, the Apostle Paul, what he was driving at in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, when he says, we do not lose heart. Though we are, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That in a world uh, that is marked by sin and sickness and brokenness in which we all must die, uh, experience healing once, Twice, three times, however many, at some point, you're not going to be healed. You're going to die. That's the reality that the gospel puts before us. And we have to keep it there, lest we lose our focus. At, and at some point in life, we're all going to die. So while healing may occur in miraculous ways as we petition the Lord, it is neither normative nor is it permanent. We must walk in this reality. Life is hard but God is good. Life is hard, you're going to die, but God is good. Ultimate and final healing for the redeemed is inextricably tied to the cross of Jesus Christ and to the hope that is found in passing with him from this life into the next, into eternal life. And when we say that the fix is in for sinful hearts and broken lives, we're not talking about the incremental effort to make this life better. That's not his focus. His focus is on eternity, uh, and we are being renewed in this life in a very real sense inwardly, but that's a very different thing from just wanting God to make me healthy, wealthy, and wise, which is the mistake of the prosperity gospel. What we're principally to understand is that Jesus is in the business of redeeming lost sinners, of making us new creations in Christ, of calling us to follow him, and then allowing him to use us in his mission. This is what he came to do. So this means that uh, the, for the redeemed, healing, lasting healing, is not a question of, of if, it's a question of when. And it will be ours when, like Ina Sanderson, we slip from this life into life in his presence and we receive our eternal reward. So we're right to pray for healing, as I said last week. 
But it's important for us to recognize that our requests necessarily need to rest against the backdrop of God's will. Is it in his will to heal? We, we defer that to him because he alone is God. So yes, we pray for healing against the backdrop of his will. And we know that he is sovereign in all of his purposes. That his purposes for us cannot be thwarted. So if it's COVID that God has signed off to remove you from this life, there is nothing you can do to prevent it. A sovereign God signs off on everything that happens in your life. And that's something to invite our trust. He's too good to do wrong and too wise to make mistakes. And we can and should trust him. So as I said last week, as healing comes, we can know that it is because it accords with God's will for our lives. And that means it must be uh, what gives God the greatest glory. Are you with me? All right, that was the recap. And if that's true which I believe it to be true, then the converse is also true. Follow me on this. We can pray, and we should, expressing our heart's desire, acknowledging the Lord's will, wanting to receive everything that is ours in Jesus Christ. And yet, if healing does not come, then we can know and trust that it did not accord with God's will for our lives. It did not accord with God's uh, will for our lives, and that means that this is not what gives God the greatest glory. Sometimes we just have to walk with a limp. Sometimes we just have a thorn in the flesh, and God uses that for his glory. And that is a very hopeful, important truth for us to own in our hearts. Because while healing from ailments and illnesses may come, it's not guaranteed and it's not normative in Scripture as a certain part of our Christian experience. But what is normative and what is guaranteed in the Christian life is suffering. Suffering in the Christian life is normative in Scripture and it's guaranteed. And Jesus was honest with you when he said in John 16, 33, In the world you will have tribulation, suffering, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, again, this is uh, my, my concern in these two weeks is, was, is not uh, to speak against healing. I've tried to be abundantly clear. God can do whatever he wants to do. And as we pray to him, we should trust him to do what accords with his will. But there's a far, uh, far more at stake for you and I to wrap our hands and our, our heads and our hearts around the doctrine of suffering. Because that's coming to you whether you see it or not. Now, you might ask, why is this important? Because we have a natural tendency toward ignoring this reality. In fact, in the West where we live, our affluence enables us to uh, kick the can down the road for a considerable amount of time with our own solutions. But at some point, at some point, suffering is going to overwhelm you. It's not going to be something you can buy your way out of. You'll not be able to sidestep it. It's going to hit you. And my passion for you as your pastor is that you be prepared for that. The truth is, we try to live life at the shallow end of faith's pool, not understanding that God is calling us to the deep end for our own good. In short, my concern for many Christians in our church, in this community, around the world, is that we are caught in some kind of arrested development. And if that persists, if we never walk with God closely enough that he leads us away from a simplistic focus on me, my health, my wealth, my happiness, all those self-terms, self-love, self-expression, self-confidence, self-fulfillment. 
If our view of, uh, of his plan for our lives never matures beyond the ex this expectation that he's just there to fix my problems or that I can try to fix them myself, uh, then at some point we're likely to be blindsided. And if we're not careful, we might just lose our faith. This happens with people when suffering strikes and they're not prepared for it. We're called to walk closely with God as he calls us out of ourself. How does Paul come to terms with the fact that God won't heal him? Because he realizes that he belongs to the Lord. The Lord has the power to change all things. But he's called Paul away from self. It's the very same thing he's called for you. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I will lead him to a life of self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-denial, self-control. This is what disciples of Jesus Christ are called to. These are the very things that prepare us to deal well with suffering. Again, it's God's plan for his beloved child. Deny yourself, take up your cross, a, kind of, a living kind of dying, and follow me. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and not just a fan. You can be a fan. Lots of people are fans. But what you're going to find in the end is, is that you didn't actually commit your life to Christ. You, you're not actually the beneficiary of what he did for you on the cross. And, and, and then worse than that, you're not prepared for what's coming your, your way in this life or in the next. Uh, and this is why I, I lovingly desire as a shepherd for you to be prepared for suffering. D.A. Carson wrote, whatever the church does, it should prepare its members to face death and meet God. Those are my two responsibilities. That's not the popular church in our day. We'd rather hear self-help messages. But my job is to prepare you to die, die well, and then to stand before God. I want to help you balance a belief in healing, a belief in fixing up this life. We spend so much time trying to make this heaven on earth. We're just sojourners here. We're just passing through in between now and the time that you will breathe your last, you are going to suffer. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I know some of what it looks like in mine. And our job is to represent Christ well as we walk through those valleys. <clears throat> D.A. Carson continues, We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. We, we, t we tend not to want to think about it. We, we're happy to stay in the shallow end of faith's pool. We tend not to think about evil and suffering, just kind of kicking it down the road, hoping it's never going to come until it's at our doorstep. He says, if by that point our belief, not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, like we've committed ourselves here in the West to this idea that God's here to help me, that he'll fix my problems, that they're always going, to way, going away because he loves me in Christ, which certainly he does. But that does not meet with Scripture. What meets with Scripture, what is normative for you and I, is to experience suffering. And so if we have uh, deeply ingrained thoughts that are inconsistent with Scripture, then we are going to be ill-equipped to, uh, to, to deal with what's coming our way. Not well thought out, but deeply ingrained, he says. They're largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus. Then the pain from the personal tragedy might be multiplied many times over, or as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. I want the foundations of your faith to be firm. I want them to be built upon truth. 
I want you to rest confident, confidently uh, in a sovereign God over you. I think one of the things the church should have discovered coming through the last year and a half is that we're not clear on the sovereignty of God over us. We're quite scared that this life would be taken away from us. That's not what we see in Scripture. We see people so committed to the sovereignty of God that nothing moves his hand when he's ready to move. Nothing stops him from accomplishing his will. And we are invited to trust him because he loves us. We are his children. And yet if we're not clear on the sovereignty of God over us, then our faith might just be shipwrecked when suffering comes. We're called to the life that Jesus is preparing us for, and none of us knows what that looks like. So it's not enough, friend, for you to follow Jesus on Sunday. It's not. You'll find that you're living at the shallow end of faith's pool unless you're willing to follow him into the deep waters of life where you learn how to seek his glory and not your own. For the Christian who remains at the end, uh, shallow end of faith's pool, uh, these, will be, uh, these things that we're talking about having will be a seeming impossibility. You can't have it with, with simple Christianity. You have to do what Jesus said. You have to follow me. Randy Alcorn wrote, A nominal Christian often discovers in suffering that his faith has been in his church, denomination, or family tradition, but not in Christ. As he faces evil and suffering, he may lose his faith, but that's actually a good thing. I have sympathy for people who lose their faith, he writes, but any faith lost in suffering wasn't a faith worth keeping to begin with. Friends, you have a very real and present hope in Jesus Christ. And you need him far more significantly than I believe you recognize. Most of us live this life, enjoy all the good things that come our way, and yet if the most we give Jesus is a little time on the weekends, we're going to be ill-equipped for what's going to come. If we want to hear the well done, then we must walk with Jesus. So this morning, I'd like to help you balance uh, the belief in healing, the belief in, in God's goodness over this life with the doctrine of suffering. I'd like to start with just a little scriptural survey, and then I want to give you five uh, essential truths on the doctrine of suffering. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Uh, I might not read these passages entirely. Uh, Paul says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All of those good things in there are things that God wants for us, and the process starts with suffering. We don't know when we, be, when we come to know Christ, we don't know fully how deeply we need him. And so life has to throw difficulty at us. God allows that to happen so that it will produce in us uh, those things, endurance and character and hope. And we wind up not being ashamed because we walked with him uh, through the difficulties of life and we have something substantive that will lead us into eternity. Romans chapter 8 verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Our sufferings are working for us, Paul says. When you go through difficulties, they're, they're achieving something for you, not only in terms of what God does in your life now, but what he's preparing you for in eternity. And if all we ever do is try to avoid problems, we're robbing ourselves of something rich in eternity. He continues in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, things that Christ followers for centuries have been experiencing. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3-7, through 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in afflic- any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, please don't miss this, friends. When you gave your life to Jesus Christ, everything about you, your, your identity became wrapped up in the person of God. And yes, that includes victorious living, but it also includes sufferings. And that's a hopeful note for Christ followers. It should encourage you that whatever you're going through, you may be walking through a valley now, or you, it may not be coming for decades for you. But at some point, life is going to come at you, and you're going to find yourself suffering. And the Bible says that God sees that as the sufferings of Jesus Christ in you. That what you're experiencing is, is meaningful to God. It, it matters to him that he hasn't abandoned you. And just because the, the answer to heal didn't come doesn't mean it doesn't glorify him. He sees your difficulties, your hurts and heartaches and the things that you suffer as the sufferings of Christ. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. This is where he says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, the suffering in this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Why would the disciples, all but one, the apostles, why would they lay their life down for Christ? Because they understood that Christ had taken over possession of them. The life that they lived was not their own. They were serving their Savior. And they knew that the sufferings they experienced in this life was working for them a far greater weight of glory. And what you experience, friend, what I experience in this life, as the sufferings of Christ are doing the same. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, I'm going to read verse 29. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 7, Paul says, in, and verse 10 rather, I may know him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrections and may share uh, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1, Now I rejoice in, in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Our sufferings have value to God. He's using them to advance his kingdom and to spread the gospel and to prove to the world that Jesus is the hope of the world. And we do that best by reflecting, as Paul says in Corinthians, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We're broken, but Jesus is everything. And what seems broken in this life is being made whole for eternity. James chapter 4, verse 12 uh, Chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. <clears> 1 <throat> Peter chapter 4, verse 13, 
uh, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout this world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I'm not trying to shortchange you in this life. I'm trying to prepare you for eternity. In this life, the New Testament, in fact, all of the Bible is quite clear. You are going to suffer. And so I just want you to wrap your hands around the doctrine of suffering so that you can suffer well, so that you will suffer without losing your faith, so that you will suffer with your eyes fixed on eternity, and so that you will allow your sufferings to be used of God. Listen, it's not wrong to share with someone about your condition. I have cancer. Uh, it's, not, it's not wrong for you to ask for, for people to pray, would you please pray that God would heal me of cancer? But then follow that report up with 10 things about how good God is and about how he's caring for you. Uh, let your suffering become a witness to other people. In order to do that, let me give you five essential truths about the doctrine of suffering. I'm grateful to David Platt for his insights. Number one, suffering cultivates confident trust in the sovereignty and goodness of God. Better than anything else, the school of suffering teaches us to be confident about God's sovereignty and his goodness. This is about having a high view of God. It's about coming to know that he is completely other than, that when he is called holy, it's because he's completely set apart from all things. And his will, the, the, the decrees by which he's ordered creation and he sustains all things, there's no one who can uh, challenge that. That's your God. And you come to know that best when even in the midst of suffering, you learn that he loves you, that he's for you, that he's focused on doing good in you, and it's about eternity. This is not the God of moralistic therapeutic deism, the God who's just there to fix my problems when I need him to. No, you, you, need, you need more God than that. You need a sovereign God. And if in the course of life, the things that we experience, they tend to be small, like, you, you have little problems, little sufferings. And if we learn a, a little about who God is and we, and, we, and we challenge the lie that he must not care for me or he would change this, and we say, no, that's not who God is. He's proven over and over that he's a sovereign God and he's good. Then we're learning to trust his goodness. And as that uh, progresses, we get prepared for the big ticket items in life when it may end your life. But your faith is not shaken because you've learned to trust the sovereignty and goodness of God. If we don't walk with him, friends, then we're going to wind up at the big ticket item, and you know what we'll do? We'll question God's goodness. We'll doubt his goodness. Many people will walk away from him because they believe if God is good, then he would fix my problem. So we need to cultivate by walking with Christ a high view of who God is so that in the course of our sufferings, we don't question his goodness or his greatness or his wisdom. Number two. Suffering grounds us with a humble view of man. We need to come to terms with the depravity of our nature. Again, I know it's not a, necessarily a popular message, but it's the truth. It's what sent Christ to the cross, that we're utterly depraved. Uh, when people say, how could a good God allow evil things to happen to good people? Well, Romans chapter 1 says there are no good people. 
None of us are good. No, not one. So in addition to cultivating a confidence in the sovereignty and goodness of God, we need to stay grounded in the depravity of humanity. That, that, that oftentimes suffering is just the fruit of sin. It may not be your sin. It may not be anything you did wrong. It may just be because this world is racked by evil and sin. And God's in the process of fixing that. And suffering reminds us of, of the depravity of our nature. And it leads us to hate sin. That's why suffering exists. God's trying to teach you to live for eternity in mind, to repent and to believe. That's what Jesus came to preach. And so by experiencing suffering, we're learning to hate what God hates. And that's the brokenness of this world. That's sin. It also reminds us, by having a a humble view of man, it also reminds us that we have a limited perspective. When we're in the midst of suffering... It's easy for us to think we know best how God should deal with it. But we have a very limited perspective. It's very myopic. And sometimes the things that we go through, God uses them for the good of other people. I have several incidences in my life where I can look back and recognize that God allowed something to happen, some suffering, and that he brought good out of it. So by reminding myself that I'm not God, that he is, that I have a limited perspective, it enables me to walk in trust through the difficulties of life. Number three, the ultimate purpose of suffering is to magnify the glory of God's grace in the suffering of his son for sinners. The cross, as I said earlier, is the centerpiece of all scripture, in fact, all of history. If you want to understand the mystery of suffering, then you have to look to the majesty of the cross. I had a man recently ask me, why I don't preach about the empty tomb more? Why are you so fixated on the cross? Why do you talk about the cross? He's not on the cross anymore. Friends, the only reason why we have anything to talk about is because he was on the cross. The cross is the centerpiece of all things. It tells us everything we need to know about God's heart for humanity, that he's willing to put his son through such great suffering. In fact, when we get to Revelation chapter 5 and we're gathered around the throne to worship him, you know how he appears to us? Revelation says he appears as the Lamb of God as though he were still slain. We don't move on easily from the cross of Jesus Christ. It's critical to every day. It's critical to every moment. It's critical to the valleys that you and I are going to be led through. Everything in all of history ultimately points to Good Friday. Everything before the cross was pointing forward to it. Everything since the cross is pointing backwards to it. Everything that will last was purchased by it. And everything that matters hinges on it. This is why Jesus said, if you will follow me, take up a cross deny yourself, and come. And this is so that we might share in the sufferings of Christ. Listen, if you easily get past the glory of the cross, I would challenge you to go back and meditate. Everything we have, everything we are, everything we might become is anchored to Jesus Christ having gone to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Propitiation, and expiation. Fourth, suffering is a useful instrument in accomplishing a variety of God's purposes. We don't always see what God's purposes are, but we can trust that they are always for our good. They're always for our sanctification. And again, our sanctification is about our soul. It's about our eternity. It's not just about fixing external problems. That's what God's focus is for you. 
He wants you to walk with Christ, to become transformed by him, and suffering is a useful instrument to accomplish his purposes. God uses suffering to refine our faith, to strip us away from, from shallow, the shallow end. Like if we have a really trivial view of who God is, suffering can break us of that. Suffering can, uh, God can use suffering to reveal his glory to us. That's what he said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Suffering teaches us to rely on God. Hey, when everything's going good in your life, is it easy for you to kind of like walk away, drift? I mean, that's, that's the, the point of Romans 12 about putting your life on an altar of living sacrifice. Val loves telling everybody that I always say a living sacrifice. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it crawls off the altar. Suffering has a way of, of, of causing us to, to rely on him. So when a person is experiencing great suffering, um, they're to be admired for what God is teaching them and for what they're learning about him. Fourth, God uses suffering to bring us to repent and to renounce all sin in our lives. As Owen says, uh, you, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. God uses suffering to remind us that sin is real and it has consequences and we must fight it. We must renounce it. Fifth, God uses suffering to lead us to our reward in him. The gospel is never as clear uh, as it is in the midst of suffering. And yet there is great hope. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. Fifth and finally, suffering is central to the accomplishment of the Great Commission. Suffering and the advancement of God's glory and the proclamation of the gospel go together. So the Great Commission will be accomplished through great suffering. This is how the gospel came to us. Jesus came to us not merely to fix worldly problems, but to die for sin, to provide salvation for our souls and an eternity in God's presence. Right? So it just makes sense if that's how salvation came to us, that the propagation of the gospel, and history is full of these stories, is going to come at the cost of great suffering. Matthew, Jesus made it clear in Matthew chapter 24 that suffering was going to have to happen and then the gospel would be preached to every people group uh, throughout, the, throughout the world and then the end will come. There are still some 1,100, I believe, uh, around that number, unreached people groups. And the gospel can be carried to them and will be carried to them according to scripture, but it will come with suffering. So how are we going to make the good news known in a world that desperately needs Jesus if everything always goes well for us, always goes good for us. You see, sufferings are coming in this life whether you know the Lord or not. But the beauty of the gospel is that God wants to redeem our sufferings. Suffering is also the, the subject uh, in terms of advancing Christ's mission of great spiritual warfare. There's opposition and obstacles and challenges. And we can expect that if we commit our lives to being part of the mission of Jesus Christ, then uh, it's going to bring suffering, but it will be worth it. I'm going to pray for you in just a moment, uh, and I'm going to close. I read uh, a quote that I want to share with you uh, just before I pray. Uh, Pastor James Montgomery Boyce wrote these words. He said, should, I pray for a, should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. 
My general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. Above all, I would say pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think that I could call from, down from the Father 10, 10 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet, that's where God is most glorified. God is in charge. In charge of what happens to his son in this life. In charge of what happens to his children. God is in charge of you. When things like this come into our lives, they're not accidental. It is not as if God somehow forgot what was going on or something bad slipped by. God is not only, is not, is not only, God is not only the one who is in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. Boyce wrote those words after he had been diagnosed with liver cancer. He died eight weeks after sharing that with his congregation. In this life, you will have tribulation, Jesus said. You're going to suffer. Take heart. I've overcome the world. The call on our lives is to walk closely with Jesus so that we might suffer well for his glory and for our eternal joy. Would you bow with me? I, I suspect that uh, in uh, a room this size that, that someone here this morning uh, is suffering and probably could have spoken about it more eloquently than I. I hope that you know that your God loves you, that he's for you, that he's not abandoned you because you're walking through a valley, that he is resolved to derive great glory from your life. And when your time has come, when you finish your course, you will be healed. Many of us haven't walked there yet. I may not not really walk there. It's coming your way, friend. It's coming mine. It is God's desire in Jesus Christ that you would learn to walk closely with him, a crucified Savior who gave his life. He suffered greatly for you so that he might show you how to suffer well. He saved you to the uttermost, and you will be perfect. You will be transformed into the image of Christ. <clears throat> we know, as Paul said, that he and uh, that in him uh, whom we have believed and we trusted that he's capable of performing to the day of Jesus Christ what he started and we trust him for that but in the meantime the stakes are enormously high for our own souls for our own hearts for how we will walk through this life and for a myriad of people around us who need to see the truth about Jesus will be will we be able to attest to the sovereignty and the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God, even though, even though. Those who walk with God have the same testimony. At some point, they will say, though my God slay me, yet will I serve him. Father God, I pray for our church. I pray for your people. 
I pray for each of our hearts, Father, as so many of us don't recognize what will come in the days ahead. That we might have a resilient faith that says we trust you. We know that you're too good to do wrong and too wise to make mistakes. And we believe that you will see us through even the darkest of days. And when this broken, sin-stained life is over, we will be made perfect in your presence because of Christ. Would you teach us to suffer well for the redemptive benefit of others around us and for the good of our own souls? For the one who's hurting, for the one who healing is not coming in this life, we pray that you would bind up their brokenness, that you would help them to refute the lie that this is somehow something they've done, that it's because you don't see them, because you don't treasure them, the gospel says otherwise. We trust you to do your will in your time. And we thank you for extracting glory and eternal reward from the sufferings we experience in this life. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me? It's in my heart to uh, wish that you never have any problems. Wish I could wish the same for myself. The last year and a half have taught me that that's not true. They're coming. I spent the last year and a half coming to terms with the fact that I'm not the man I once was or thought I was. Not every ailment is going away. Sometimes you just have to learn like Jacob to walk with a limp. But there's glory there's purpose in everything we experience. And he's infinitely worthy of our highest praise, whether we're on the mountaintop, but especially when we're in the valley, because he can do great things with that. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May you recognize the security of a sovereign God over your life. And may you suffer well for the sake of Christ, for the weight of your own eternity, and for God's glory. God bless you. You're dismissed.